and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Well, I'm sad. Oh my gosh, why is that? Um, well, you know why we were literally just talking about it. Uh, character actor Eli Wallach has passed. I forget everything. <laughs> you know, I, I like to be fresh, <laughs> so I forget everything the minute I say hello. Your mind is a blank. Yes. I envy you. Yes. I envy you. I'm just waiting for you to imprint on my mind what you are thinking. And, <laughs> and so it sounds like, David, I, I should be sad. Yeah, you're supposed to be sad right okay, now. Okay, got it. Um, I don't know why you're being uh, glib ab- about this. Uh, but yeah, um, a, a fantastic uh, character actor has, has passed away. Weirdly, I was just thinking about him sort of because, because I had... Uh, I've recently seen Roman Polanski's new film, Venus mm-hmm. and Fur, and I was thinking about recent Roman Polanski films, and Eli, Eli Wallach was in The Ghost Rider mm-hmm. um, a scant four years ago. Yeah. Um, or a regular size four years ago, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> however I think, much. I think they go by 365 still. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I guess the the scantness or non-scantness of a year is in the eye of the beholder. So Fair enough. It's, it's subjective. So, um I would say a scant four years ago. Anyway, uh, but uh, of course he was in many more movies than that. Why don't you talk about that? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> like the good, the bad, and the ugly. There's one that I yeah, that's, that's that leaps to mind. Uh, that's the big one, and that's the thing is uh, Eli Wallach, who died at age 98. Uh, if you go back uh, through my Twitter feed, apparently like a year and a half ago, or maybe two years ago, I had uh, if I had to guess, I would say I looked up Eli Wallach, assuming he had passed on. Uh-huh. And he had not. And then I had tweeted, it would appear Eli Wallach is going to be here as long as he wants to be. Um, because he was a very old man. Uh-huh. And he acted... He's still acting. Pretty much right up until the end. He, yeah. I believe a, a few years ago he won the Lifetime Achievement Award. And, That's of course, right. we never got to see the speech because the Oscars are not interested in hearing old man Wallach talk. Um, Do you know, which is my bothersome to me. La- last year, this past... Oscar speech when I uh, Oscar speech Oscar telecast and I mm-hmm. took 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 that week off and right. you, uh, uh, you uh, who did you have on Kyle and Jason you had Kyle and Jason on um, I quite enjoyed that <laughs> I quite enjoyed not watching the Oscars this past year I might make that a habit <laughs> you know what it's here's the thing I'll give you four that way we can that'll make up for the the month I took off last okay, year I get four years you get four years of not not being there for the Oscar talk perfect. Um, yeah, it's uh and and he's he was in so many things and I've seen him in a number of things but I can't even call it to mind. I know he was in a movie that I don't like called uh The Holiday. <laughs> but he's great in it. Okay. Of course. Uh and then I remember really enjoying him in Mystic River. Again, at this point I'm talking he's he's in he would be in like cameos and things. Mm-hmm. Um and so, but he was, he was just such a forceful personality, even as he got older, he just had a power to him that I really liked. Um, but the one that obviously should be talked about the most is his role as Tuco mm-hmm. in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, uh, in which, I mean, Lee Van Cleef is awesome. He makes for a great villain. Angel Eyes, is that him? Is that his name? It's been... Maybe close to 10 years. I think it's Angel Eyes. uh, Uh, And and I'm not good with character names to begin with. But Um, he's like all three of the main characters are amazing. But Eli Wallach really is the breakout there. I mean, partially because 
as you know, I think I said this, uh, I don't remember exactly what we were talking about. I think we were talking about stuff that just like works for us. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and one thing that I like is when somebody who seems bumbling and in many ways is can still show themselves to be good at something. I have been, uh, while working, I have been watching or rather listening to, uh, the office and, Michael Scott, mm-hmm. as played by Steve Carell, is bumbling in a lot of ways. But when he's good at something, because everybody's good at something, when you find it something he's good at, and when he's good at something, he's great at it, it's somehow invigorating. And Tuco well, that's, is no, right. Never mind. He's over the top, and he's silly, and he's funny, uh-huh. but he's, he's also quite lethal. Yeah. And that's something that I love. And, and Eli Wallach managed to bring all of those together into a completely cohesive character and i hate to say it like we don't know much about the man with no name blondie sorry we don't know much about him uh nor do we know much about uh lee van cleef so really the only character that we're allowed to see different emotions from is tuco so he kind of is the glue of all the of all the characters he's the one that is sort of our entry point into this world even though he's completely when i say over the top i don't mean the performance the character is over the top uh, and so, so <laughs> Eli Wallach, in what could have just been the, and some of this is great writing too, but like, in what could have just been like the comic relief and the oafish character, he's got like a lot writing on his shoulders and he totally, I mean, he, st- he steals the movie, which is no small thing yeah, in a movie like that. that. Um, so that's, yeah, that's um, the one everyone talks about, but rightfully so. When you mention. And then we can move on. We have a lot to get to in the episode today. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned uh, characters not being what they seem. It reminded me of an Eli Wallach performance I had forgotten. I don't know if you watched the TV series Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. I watched a one, I watched one or two, yes. Okay. I mean, people in the know just call it Sunset Strip. But um, <laughs> <laughs> he did one episode where uh, during the show, like a seemingly like senile old man like wandered backstage and wouldn't leave mm-hmm. you know this was the man played by eli walt yeah <laughs> you can imagine um and uh and then it later turned out that the reason he was there was because he had worked there that the studio was a historic studio in the backstory of the show and all mm-hmm. these sort of variety shows and this was he was a um comedy writer who had been blacklisted during the times of huac and mm-hmm. so it's the same thing it's like that he's uh, there first as sort of comic relief and then sort of as a, um, I, I don't know, a totem of sorts for the other people to deal with. He's not a real person because he's like senile. And then you, uh, you're, you know, his true personhood is revealed. Uh, it's a similar thing. It's not a, as good an episode uh, or as good. It's not as good as good, the bad and the ugly. Mm-hmm. If you can imagine that. But, um, <laughs> Uh, I hadn't thought I had completely forgotten about that until you mentioned it. He has, he does have a, a surprisingly, he has a very odd screen presence in that, especially as he got maybe a little bit older, but not even then, uh, in that he did, he does seem inherently to be comedic, but mm-hmm. he isn't. I mean, he, 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 the characters often have that element to them, but there's usually. It's almost like as he plays characters that are meant to be underestimated and then you discover a deep well of intelligence and uh, competence and ability. And I feel like that's maybe 
a good way to sum up Eli Wallach himself. Everybody now, and I mean, everyone throughout history, to my knowledge, uh, has acknowledged that he is a very, very good actor. All um, the way throughout history. Throughout history. Going I back mean, to the Crusades. Yeah. What do you think they were fighting about? <laughs> Some people are like, I think he's more of a comedian. Some people said, no, he's a, you know, a really good but, dramatic actor. But everyone agreed he was talented. Yeah, no, absolutely. They're like, look, and there are some people, you know, some clergymen saying like, look, guys, what are we even arguing about? Let's focus on the areas in which we agree. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but yeah, and so that's, you've, you've totally derailed me. I didn't know what I was <laughs> yeah. going to say. Uh, anyway, so um, I think. Oh, were you going to mention his role in Keeping the Faith as Rabbi Ben Lewis? Uh, no. Which is not. Because uh, I, I haven't don't seen that movie in a long time. Yeah, I don't remember him. Uh, I don't remember liking that movie either. But I do remember him in uh, The Magnificent Seven, which I thought he was wonderful. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, that's that's what it was. And so uh, but he's he is definitely a character actor in the way he looks. And he just looks as though, all right, we know what character he's going to be. And I don't know. He looked like he could be typecast. But he never really was and so it's unfortunate this tends to happen when certain actors die i know for example james rebhorn is a great example Mm -hmm. uh recently of an actor that everybody maybe just kind of took for granted as being amazing and as such never really talked about him as a really great actor who manages to do some pretty neat things on screen and so with Eli Wallach, thankfully, because of a few key roles like Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, um, they acknowledged that he was good. But my hope is that now that he has passed away and people are looking back on his career, my hope is that they look back and realize, yeah, he was maybe one of the best character actors in the history of Hollywood. Which I don't say lightly because there have been some pretty damn good ones. And, uh, and that he deserves to be remembered for more than just that film. And I say that knowing full well that I, that's by that film. You mean keeping the faith. That's the one. Yes. In which he played rabbi Ben something, something. Ben something. Um, but yeah. And so as I, as I scroll through here, I mean, I see, let's see. What is that? Oh man. Damn it. (laughs) Your stupid phone. I hate my phone. Every time we're trying to use your phone. (laughs) Yeah. When I'm just sitting at Denny's waiting for my friend to show up and playing my, uh, and playing 2046, or 2048. I don't remember the name of it. 2046 is a Wong Kar Wai film. That's w- that's what I'm playing. Okay. Uh, oh, and then, oh, and he, and he was... Uh, like how I would play American Ninja in the backyard when I was a kid. You were playing 2046, like you're pretending to be the characters in your mind. Because I didn't have any friends, so I would grab a stick off the tree and pretend to be Michael Dudikoff in American, the American Ninja in American, in American Ninja American Ninjas 1, 2, and 4. Because he wasn't in the third one. <laughs> Yeah, that's the right. thing. He knew he knew where his next meal was coming from. He thought he was too big for the American Ninja series. Um, okay, so uh, real quick, a couple of uh, other things. He was in The Godfather Part 3, a movie that, of course, is uh, largely maligned and I'd say stands to reason, but he's very good. And that speaks to – this is kind of a strange thing. He could play a number of different nationalities – He's um, not like a, um, like John Turturro in that way. Um, that's not the – that's true. The, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank. Anthony Quinn is the one I always think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then it needs to be mentioned. He is one of, I believe, three actors. I was having this conversation with friend of the, friends of the show, uh, Scott and I and uh, Kyle Anderson the other day. He's one of three actors to have played Mr. Freeze uh-huh. on the old Batman series. The other two – George Stevens. Okay. I'm sorry. George Sanders. Pardon me. Um, and Otto Preminger. 
But Eli Wallach, if I had to guess, each one of them obviously played the character very differently. Uh-huh. And Eli Wallach played him as kind of the uh, the boisterous, fun, uh, uh, gleefully evil. That wasn't Otto Preminger? I know. It's hard to believe. <laughs> um, okay. And George Sanders, of course, played the super sexy, uh, sleek Mr. Freeze that we've all wanted. Um, Do you know who George Sanders is? No. Um I'm sure I'll look. I'm sure I'll. He's super awesome. Him. He was an. All what do I know Eve. him from? All about Eve. He was also the voice of Shere Khan. Oh, the voice of Shere Khan. Okay. Um, anyway, sorry. well, from the sacred to the profane, let's pay some bills. What do we have to advertise today? Okay. This episode is brought to you by the Double Feature Podcast. This week, Eric and Michael discuss the Lords of Salem and mach- uh, Machete Kills. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I wanted to make sure I got the pronunciation right, which then screwed up the title. Yeah, you forget. Uh, it's the sequel. Yes. It's not Machete. It's Machete Kills. Machete Kills. I apologize. It's probably offensive to somebody. Uh, they talk about... Although if I, okay, I can't. Sorry. I'm, we're paying bills. Uh, so in this episode, they talk about non-art house auteurs, as well as the, as the standard... As what well does as, that mean? Not our host. Well, I am not in the episode, so I don't know. But if I had to guess, I would say auteurs like a Robert Rodriguez or a Rob Zombie um, who are 100% auteurs. Right. Okay, see, now this gets into the definition of art house then. That's true, yes. Can you be a genre art house filmmaker? I think you can, I think be, you can, but it depends on how you do it. I don't think anybody, as much as, as you and I enjoy Robert uh, Rodriguez, I don't think anybody would say he's an art house filmmaker, or at least hasn't been in a long time. But see, this is like when people refer to movies as indie, which is a, by the way, in my, I have my notes on my, I, my uh, smartphone here. Mm-hmm. I have uh, a list of possible topics in the future. Okay. And one of them is, what do we, what do we mean when we say indie. Oh, not a lot of money. Uh, um, I just saved us an episode. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, oh, I may, may so have been thinking this the wrong way. I mean, Robert Rodriguez' early films were certainly indie. Does oh, that yeah. cross over with Art House then? Because they wouldn't have played mainstream theaters. They would have played mm-hmm. Art Houses. Or does Art House mean something more, I don't know, ephemeral? I think it, I think it has to do with a, a sensibility. Um but yeah, I feel like it's uh, that's definitely a good episode to uh, a good topic for for an episode. And Maybe so, we can lump them, lump them together. Art house and indie. Let's I think define so. them. I think so. In ninety minutes, we will talk about what art house and indie mean and come to no conclusion because that's a battleship pretension. That does. is what we do. <laughs> I, and we and we wonder why we don't have that many listeners. Um, okay, but moving on. So already, you and I are intrigued by this topic from the double feature podcast. But that's just one of them. Here's oh, some more. Oh my, I can't even handle it. I know. Well, plug your ears because I got to keep going. But meanwhile, the, I, the the Apple Podcast app is failing today. I'm very much looking with envy at your non-Apple smartphone today. That's right. This bullshit podcast app. Uh, you know, I'm trying to do my job. I literally don't know how to do my job when I don't have my hockey podcast to listen to. <laughs> and I'm like, it's frozen. I'm just like, I guess I'll just like browse amazon and see how much some stuff is like i couldn't do my job at work today because i didn't have a podcast to listen to could you listen to it on your computer probably okay I, I, but it's it, like it completely threw me off fair so, enough meanwhile i got that and you're dumping all this other podcast goodness in my ear yeah listen to this know. david i don't even know what to do along with that uh, non-art house auteur topic they also talk about the standard audience complaint of that's not how i would have done it which already that's kind of an interesting idea uh, they talk about... No, is that... 
I haven't listened to the episode, nor am I in it, David. <laughs> but You're am I saying, me questions. are they saying if I were that character, I wouldn't have done that? Or are they saying if I were the filmmaker, I, I wouldn't have filmmaker. done it? I assume filmmaker. Okay, I see. So, although who's to say, frankly, when we're talking about like Lords of Salem and stuff. Uh, right, don't go in there. That's, yeah. a, that's something people that's often say. That's how I would have done it, going in that <laughs> door. I would have done it by going down the hallway. <laughs> I apologize, everybody. Only you and I, I find know. that. Was, uh. That's dumb. That is a dumb thing that we just did. I'm sorry. All right. Let's finish this, this ad that people paid us money for. I'm so tickled by the idea <laughs> of someone compelled by a horror movie to advise the character, but not yell at them in fear, just to smugly sit back and be like, that's not the way I would have gone with that. <laughs> just watching this person get chopped up and be like, all right, that's an interesting play. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with your uh, strategic there. <laughs> oh, jeez. All right. You in a better mood now? Yeah, I'm in all a right, good mood good. Now. All right. I'm over Eli Wallach now. <laughs> yeah, 98 good years. Yeah. When he passed away, you know what I said? It's not how I would have done it. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. I've given myself a headache. Oh. Okay. <clears throat> you know what I would have done? I would have listened to the Double Feature podcast. <laughs> no, qu- absolutely. Oh, all right. It seems like forever ago we were talking about non-art house auteurs, isn't uh-huh. it? All right. I still have ideas on that, by the way. But Oh, no question about it. Also in this episode, they talk about why Rob Zombie is a fascinating person and the interesting relationship between Robert Rodriguez and the box office. To hear this and other episodes, just go to doublefeatureshow.com or click on the ad at battleshippretension.com. Oh, man. All right. That was tiresome. Oh, I, but in, I was, it was invigorating. What do you think the, okay. Do you think anybody laughed as hard at that as you and I just did? I don't know. If I, the answer is no, I venture to say we're now being self-indulgent. <laughs> um, we started a podcast. Fair enough. <laughs> we crossed we crossed the Rubicon on self-indulgence back in 2007. Um, David, you and I, we did this for the people initially. But then, you know. <laughs> we didn't want to. No, we didn't. Um, anyway. Uh, so, you know what? If someone didn't find that as funny as we did, it's probably because they weren't hearing it right. Nice. And the way to hear it... The way to hear this show, the only way, the only endorsed method, obviously there are billions of possible methods of listening to the show, mm-hmm. any combination you think of. The only official endorsed method of consuming Battleship Retention is via tweakedaudio.com earbuds. No, and not on Stitcher. Uh, <laughs> yes, and not on Stitcher. I forgot about our vendetta. Um, the way you get those is you go to tweakedaudio.com. That's T-W-E-A-K-E-D-audio.com. That's your home for professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. And we really we stand by not only the quality, but the styles and the colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, those, are, those are at a low, low price to begin with, even if you're not in the know by being one of the cool uh, Battleship Retention listening mm-hmm. cognoscenti. But now that you are in the know, here's how you get... The, be- the better deal. You go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension and you get one third off and no shipping charges. Absolutely. So the way you do that, you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension. So now listeners at home, I'm listening to you. I'm talking to you. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not listening to you. <laughs> no, um, absolutely not. Even I will. if you were talking to us, you can email me and you can find me on Twitter. I'm, you can comment on the website. Uh, we'll get to all that later at the end of the show. Yeah. But um, 
I want to I want to say something to the listeners. If you're not a listener, this isn't for you. But if you're listening to this right now, I want you to see if you can figure out what we're going to do in this episode. And the way you do that, I'm not, I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna lead you by the hand here. I'm just gonna give you some clues. You look at the history of episodes. <laughs> this is through. We've done. Over 300 uh, 379 episodes. Mm-hmm. We've done more than 379 at this point. Yeah. If you go through the history of episodes, notice, if you will, any time an episode is divisible by 10, but not divisible by 50, you'll notice something in co- those episodes all have something in common. That might give you a clue as to what form this today's episode is going to take. Uh, that's right. We're, uh, we're profiling somebody mm-hmm. in this episode. Yes. Racially, now, right? <laughs> um, that's the standard way. Um, we're going to do Eli Wallach, but it's hard to tell. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, we are, um, doing a profile and an artist profile, which is what we do. Uh, whenever we feel like it, no, that's not true. Every 10 episodes, but not every 50 episodes. Right. Uh, you might notice if you look at the title of the episode on the, uh, on your MP3 player or what have you, um, that we're profiling a, a composer. Yeah. And so you'd expect, again, given Battleship Retention history, if you're someone who's been paying attention, you might expect we'd have a guest, specifically West Anthony, because yeah. he's our go-to composer guy. Um, West was supposed to be here to do this. Uh, he had something come up, not, you know, not his fault uh, at all. He couldn't be here, but we, uh, you know, have to, because we have to do it on yeah, episode we really, 380. Yeah, we really kind of painted ourselves into yeah. a, cor- a corner here. Um we had to go ahead with it. So just know that West Anthony is here in spirit and helped select the selections we'll Indeed. be talking about. Um, why don't you get us started? Okay. So uh, it was a few months ago, actually, that uh, that this came about because uh, West Anthony happened to mention that composer Jerry Goldsmith, who is a favorite of yours and mine, when we've done our, uh, our favorite musical pieces uh, episodes... Uh, you picked right. the theme from Gremlins. Yeah, I picked the theme from The Shadow, both by Jerry Goldsmith. And so, oh, what's that? Off topic immediately. Okay, good. Director of The Shadow, Russell Mulcahy. Mm-hmm. Did you realize that he is the, I guess, creator and executive producer of the Teen Wolf TV series? No. Does that make you a little more interested in watching Teen Wolf? No. Really? Yeah. I don't know. The show you has a what? big Actually, following. You know what? Actually, yes. Yeah. All right. You got <laughs> right? it. Right. All right. So. My instinct was to say no, but if but my heart says yes. Um, but yeah, and so uh, West Anthony mentioned that uh, uh, Jerry Goldsmith passed away uh, basically ten years ago, uh, mm-hmm. give or take uh, like a few weeks. Um, and so at at a at a relatively young age, seventy five. I mean, seventy five is kind of a, a good run there, but. Uh, it's 20, 24 guess, years I mean, before uh yeah, before if you're, yeah, well, like he's, you yeah. Know, that's yeah. he's changing the grading curve there. Yeah, absolutely. 75 is yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you had a good run there. But also okay, by the way, we could do um I don't know, a few dozen episodes about Jerry Goldsmith because uh, if you look at the old IMDb under composer, he has 250 credits. Uh he worked a lot. Yeah. And that's I crazy. and I couldn't wait to talk about uh about some of his work. Uh, one of the big problems was w- which ones are we going to do? And so uh, West and I uh, worked on which tracks we were going to play and what we were going to talk about. And we ultimately decided to uh, try to pick something, uh, try to pick something from each genre 
and uh, maybe not every single one, but I don't know. We tried to pick stuff that was uh, notably different uh, from each other, um, with a couple of uh, a couple of exceptions. But even those are, are very different. So, um, so yeah, this is not at all complete. I mean, this is like I said, we could do another one, and I'd be fine with it. I, I yeah. think that'd be a lot of fun. Um, and we might do some some sort of supplemental episode with absolutely when West is free because we'd love to get his input. Absolutely, and that, frankly, we could probably do this episode again, and it'd be much more uh, intelligent uh, <laughs> because he can speak with authority about music. Uh, all I can ever do about music is talk about uh, how it made me feel, uh-huh. um, which is which, frankly, is the point of movie music um, to emphasize a certain feeling right, and and underscore things. And Matt Zoller Seitz is not going to like that. No, he's not. But at the same time, I don't give a shit. So, uh, okay. Oh, wow, you just you ruined my mood, David. Thank you. Uh, okay. But yeah, so there's a, a lot of uh, really class, you know, really classic pieces that we're not going to be playing. One that uh, that I sort of wanted to play but i was fine pushing off is uh the music from Patton, which i think is really iconic uh war music that doesn't totally sound like war music but that's neither here nor there it was also Um, used in the simpsons episode bart the general uh well of course yeah it's been used uh it's been used in parody quite a bit it's one of those kind of things oh and bart the general is a specifically a Patton parody he's okay sorry (laughs) yes i appreciate the uh the alliteration there that's alliteration right yeah. Okay, good. What else would it be? Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember all those terms. Okay. It's not an acrostic. I don't know what that one is. Oh, that's... Uh, oh, that boy. Uh, you can look that up while I talk. There's uh, assonance. Assonance? I'm Which not one sure is what that? that is. I okay, think... let's... Rather than speculate on things we don't actually know, let's yeah. talk about music You talk about music, about. I'm going to look up assonance. Okay. Um, you're not going to need to look up asinine. I'll tell you that. Um, okay. <clears throat> so here's the thing. West who has an encyclopedic knowledge about music and film scores and that sort of thing. Um, He uh, picked some, and when he said that he couldn't make it today, we actually decided we would stick with his picks uh, because, you know, uh, we listened to them, and uh, I think he was absolutely right to pick them uh, because they don't sound like anything else uh, that was on our list. And so we're going to go chronologically. We're going to start in 1971. Jerry Goldsmith had been composing long before that, but this is the earliest one we're going with. And it's Escape from the Planet of the Apes. And it is, and I, I'm not sure exactly the phrasing, but I believe West, in his email, said that the reason he picked this one is because it's just so batshit crazy. Um, which it is. Uh, one thing about the, just the general Planet of the Apes scores um, is that there's a chaotic quality to them. There's a, certainly a primal quality to them. Uh, it seems like, in many in many ways, the type of music that apes would that you know uh, intelligent apes would play, and so uh, and it makes you feel like you're in another world, um, or one could say on another planet. Oh, but you're not, David. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> That's the truth. And so, um, so yeah. And then this one, uh, it has kind of that standard like uh, drum beat, uh, that chaotic drum beat, but it also has. Some, some very strange uh, underscoring that sounds, I'm not sure if I'd say jazzy. It's hard to explain, um, especially because I'm not as well-versed in this kind of thing as, as West is. But as you listen to it, it, certainly, it, it is certainly different than the score from the first Planet of the Apes. It sounds similar. It has a lot of the same qualities, but it feels 
more urban and modern, and I, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe Escape from the Planet of the Apes actually does take place on, well, I mean, they all take place on Earth, but... Spoiler again. Yeah, sorry. But this one takes place in our modern time. I think this is when the, like, the, cha- the time travel element uh, has taken place, because I believe there's... Okay, hang on now. You got your Planet of the Apes, David. You got your Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Okay. I believe then you have Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Then I think you have Battle for the Planet of the Apes and then Conquest. I might get Battle and Conquest mixed up. I right. don't know exactly. And then it picks up again with Rise of the Planet of the Apes and then the new one is Absolutely. Dawn there's, of the Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Yes, there's yeah. There's nothing in between. Yeah, that's all I can think of. Um this, Are you being sarcastic and you're skipping over Tim Burton's? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I wasn't sure. <laughs> and I wanted to. I said you talked about. I said Dawn of the Rise of yeah. the Planet of the Apes. That was my. That was my little joke that I just wanted to keep adding. West That's is my, my little joke. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that uh, was that was my impression of Pat from Saturday Night Live, who would say it's my little joke. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> wow. I don't. Pat, like from It's Pat. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember that at all. Okay. Um, um, I know that West uh, often says. Uh, of the rise of the planet of the apes of the that's the thing he enjoys <laughs> saying and i enjoy hearing it um so yeah we, we'll go ahead and play this and you'll understand like uh so this one has a time travel element and so uh two intelligent apes are now i believe in our world and so that would explain why it has the original ape type theme as well as uh a, a more, I'd say, recognizable music underneath because it is a different time and, though the same planet, a very different world than the one we have seen in the previous films. So let's listen to that right now.
All right. What'd you think? Was it everything you expected it to be? <laughs> and more. And more. Um, okay. Moving on. All right. Here we go. I like the sound of that. <laughs> yes. All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> um, so next we've got, speaking of Roman Polanski, David, which you were earlier, we've got Chinatown. And we will be playing the love theme from Chinatown, which we're going to play. We're not going to do it the same way. We're going to play that right now. Okay, here we go. All right. So let's just keep moving. No, that's, that's, that's a joke, of course. Um, would, yeah. yeah, the love theme, first off, the entire score for, for Chinatown is wonderful. Um, and there was uh, the possibility, and this was, this was a mistake on my part uh, when we were submitting uh, scores to, or, or bits to play. Um, I submitted both Chinatown and LA Confidential. They are very similar types of scores. They're both, you know, films noir that uh that incorporate instrumentation from that era into their score um which i well, which i like a lot the thing you were talking about with um uh the planet of the apes mm-hmm. of the yeah um uh and i think something that will come up probably later and also when we talked about um gremlins mm-hmm. about how jerry goldsmith was more than willing to embrace uh different instrumentation or even different sort of I don't want to diminish it by saying trends, but mm. uh, he was willing to be very modern in a way that could be dated. But I think his boldness and his confidence and his just pure talent yeah. um, kept him from ever making choices that maybe were regrettable. I think there might be one or two. In fact, on here, there's one that I think, again, 
it's hard to know what people can t- consider dated. Uh, in a few, uh, in a little while, in fact, I think the very last one that we'll be talking about here, that is not true. Because uh, uh, the second to last one we'll be talking about um, could be considered dated. I still think it's really good music, uh, but we'll, we'll get to that uh, later. And so, um, but yeah, and, and I think especially when you have uh, uh, a movie like Chinatown, which was made in 1974, and it takes place in the 1930s, I believe, right? Depression era. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a period film. And so would you say off the top, off the top of your head, maybe you're, you're not the person to ask, uh, cause I can't call to mind immediately. Would you say it is more common or less common in period films to have music that, that conceivably sounds like it's from that period? I think, um, I, I think it's okay. I think it depends on whom you ask. Okay. If you ask someone who like our friend, Kate Kolzik, who really knows music, right. they right. can point things out that mm-hmm. we can't. But I think generally filmmakers when making period films try to avoid things that are glaringly yeah. anachronistic. Yeah. Personally, that's something I love. Yeah. If, uh, I, I, I love when a, mo- when a movie is set in the 30s or whatever and has techno music. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of that. Um, and it's I don't think that sort of thing is done often enough. But then, if it, again, if it were done more often... Maybe I wouldn't like it as much. Yeah. But uh, it, it it always tickles me when that happens. But yeah, I think generally, I mean, look at um, Mad Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I know that's right. I was, like uh, the, 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 the time they used a Decemberist song to open an episode, everyone remembers that because it's the only time they ever did that. Yeah. Uh, everything else comes from more or less the era. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think it's one of those things where, um, I was just, uh, while I was working, I, these days I listen to a lot of, uh, I've, I've, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, these days, but I did listen slash watch the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy while I was working. And, uh, the music there sounds like, I mean, it has an epic quality. It has this timeless quality. It certainly doesn't sound classical, but it sounds like sort of, uh, kind of an old school, movie scoring but it's hard to know exactly what the music of middle earth would be so it's more just kind of a general yeah a lot of lutes yeah perhaps a a mandolin sure um and so it more just kind of has a general i I like the music from lord of the rings don't get me wrong but it kind of has a general uh almost uh, broad sweeping maybe even generic quality to it whereas is that howard shore that is howard shore who, whose work i do like and again i do enjoy a lot of the uh, certainly a lot of the themes in lord of the rings um and so uh to get back to jerry goldsmith doing chinatown one thing that i like about that movie in general is that it ha- it definitely has a 70s sensibility but it never it never betray it never uh like winks at you or winks about the era that it is portraying i mean it's completely sincere uh in showing you know in making a, a noir film but it does it i mean you and i did a profile on john alonzo right mm-hmm. uh the cinematographer so it looks different it looks hotter and and just more uh with the sun just beating down and all that and i think the music goes a long way to sell the period and the and the love theme first off it's one of the best love themes you'll ever hear uh, and maybe one of the b- best bits of film music you'll ever hear in general it sounds like two people 
uh, okay, this is going to, all right, this is going to sound strange. It sounds like two people making love, mm-hmm. not having sex, making love. It sounds like a movie's idea of romance and that sort of thing. And so it's a sensual kiss. Uh, it, it's like the emotional aspect of sex and not the, you know, even though the film is very sweaty at times, uh, it's, it's not that, do you know what I mean? It's, it's hard to explain. Uh, spoiler. I'd have to hear it. Yeah. You all just heard it, Yeah, yeah. but we, we're not playing it live. Yeah. Uh, anyway, moving on. It just, it seems it, this is the only image I can think of. It, it feels like two people kissing, while curtains blow around them. Like it just, it seems like something it just, it's, it seems heightened and elevated and just very romantic, uh, with of course, uh, a slightly, just a slightly melancholy and mournful quality to it. Just slightly though, almost as though this is the most romantic thing ever, but we all know the romance is not going to last forever. Mm -hmm. It's just, I I can't speak well enough about that piece of music, but you guys heard it already. So we're going to move on. Moving on. Next. Next. This is one that, uh, Wes picked and, uh, based on the music alone, uh, it's from a film called break heart pass and it's got, uh, Charles Bronson in it. I've not seen the film, but based on, uh, this piece of music alone, uh, I looked up the film and it sounds really wonderful. Um, it was made 1975. It is a Western and, uh, I can't give a lot of detail about the plot. I looked it up. It's, it sounds very interesting. It's kind of like, uh, it's odd that it would be, uh, it came out within, I think a year after, uh, murder on the Orient express. And it's another movie that takes place on a train with a lot of different character types and things are not as they seem. I believe that the, that was in the plot synopsis on IMDb. So it sounds really fun and interesting. And what I like about this piece of music that you're about to hear is that it absolutely sounds like a Western, um, it takes place during that era. Um, and to my knowledge, Jerry Goldsmith did not score a lot of Westerns. So that is what, one of the reasons why West uh, picked this piece of score is because it's a genre that he didn't do very often. But also what I really like about it, and this goes to something you were saying earlier, is that it is definitely Western instrumentation, Western sensibility, but with a very, in my opinion, a very strong 70s vibe. Uh, not disco-ish or anything like that, but if you listen to it, there's a, it, it definitely feels, I mean, it has elements of, you know, like El Dorado or any of those old John Wayne, Uh uh, John Ford, Howard Hawks type Westerns, but it also has kind of a swing and propulsiveness that you would find in the seventies. That might just be my interpretation, but I definitely got a, a strong hint of that. And so, uh, I enjoyed it a great deal and the movie sounds wonderful. So I can't wait to watch it. Uh, break heart pass. We will play the music now.
Okay. All right. Next up, Jerry Goldsmith. Another one of his? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Contribute something, David. All right. Aside I from am, your I'm little the, one-liners. I, I, all right. I have all sorts of things. You're to the color guy. In <laughs> fact, we, we actually hit. We are about to hit one that I feel like you can uh, speak of because one okay. that you you speak very well of regularly, um, and it is the only movie for which. Jerry Goldsmith has ever won an Academy Award. Okay. He's been nominated many times, but he only ever won for The Omen. Oh, yeah. I love this one. Yeah. Um, there's so many things about this movie in general that I love. Um, even it's, though, it's educational. Yeah, yeah. You learn a lot of facts about science and nature <laughs> in which uh, animals and may or may not be dangerous yeah, yeah. and how to pronounce the names of those animals. Um, but uh, even though overall... I don't think The Omen is a great movie. Right. Uh, there are so many things that I like about it. And maybe number one on that list is the music. Because yeah. um, I think, I mean, it speaks to what I was talking about before, like the Gremlins theme and him using, you know, very, uh, you know, not being afraid of instrumentation and, and stuff like that. Uh, uh, and I've in general talked about my taste before and maybe like, almost to a fault i'm a sucker for audacity mm -hmm. you know and uh he's like he's going all in with the music here you oh, know yeah. using the uh the chorus is always the thing that stands out to yeah. me that um there are there are parts of me of there are parts of the score that, again i don't have a great memory for score and mm -hmm. you've also listened to these more recently yeah um but there are there are parts that in my mind are just just voices i don't know if that's true mm -hmm. Uh, but it stands out that way because yeah. it's such a strong element um, of voices and not like not being shy about the fact that they're saying like theoretically demonic things in Latin yeah. or whatever. Like he's not, he's not using any sort of subtlety in this score. Yeah. Uh, and I really appreciate that. It's, it's, is a big part of what makes the movie go down so easy, even though, at a distance, look, considering the whole thing, it's not that great a movie. Yeah. Oh, if you say it helps the movie go down, I think it helps sell the movie. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, you and I uh, talked about, uh, have talked frequently about, you know, It's All For You, which is a really disturbing part. There's, there are really good horror elements in the film. Definitely. But the proceedings are all quite silly. It's a <laughs> silly movie in many ways. Not that score, though. That score, like you said, it is all in. It buys the reality of... I mean, if you think about the... Here's the, here's the ramifications of the film. The world's going to end. Uh -huh. This kid is the Antichrist, regardless of what Richard Donner seems to think. This kid is the Antichrist, and the Antichrist only come. I don't know if you're up on your, uh, you know, Bible. The Antichrist shows up when the world's going to end. That's usually how that goes. So this kid being around means life as we know it is over. Uh -huh. So that's a big deal. <laughs> In spite of how silly the movie is and how much fun Richard Donner's clearly having with it, obviously. Um, you know, the music is used to sell the stakes. And if you did not have this music that, w that took everything as seriously as possible while still being balls out crazy... Um, the movie wouldn't work so well. It's, it's, I mean, I, I wonder if you had music that wasn't as good, because I know a lot of people love The Omen. Uh, I'm not one of them, but... But I also don't blame them. 
Yeah, sure, absolutely. It's like if you like if you were having a movie night or whatever. I wish you did that sometimes. Had like a Saturday night movie night or something. I'd love to come. Um, if you were having a movie night and you were like, we're gonna watch The Omen, I'd be like, yeah, I'm in. I'm up for that. It's. A, I think it, I would always be up for watching it. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. That I guess, and that speaks well of it. I think Richard Donner is a very good director, yeah. even when he's making a movie I don't love. Maybe um, we should listen to the music. Maybe we should. Li- that's true. Maybe we should listen to it, and you guys can judge for yourselves. Hey guys, uh, is this good music? Yeah, take a listen. Okay. All right. Uh, what do you, what do you, what'd you think? Did you guys think it was good? Um, it's very <laughs> silly. Uh, and I forgot what I was going to say. Well, during that whole long stretch, we were just yeah. listening to music just then. I forgot the thing I was going to say. Oh, man. I'm about sorry. the omen. Ah, shit. Um, moving on, I guess. Uh, or did you have more to say? I swear I had something on the tip of my tongue. Pro oh. or con? I don't know. Okay. I, I don't know. It might it might have been some bullshit thing that wasn't even about the movie for all. Uh, that's entirely possible. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's just I'm trying to think. Looking looking at these I, looking at these uh, pieces I, of score that we are looking at. I wonder. Okay. I remember what I was going to ask. By the way. Okay. Uh, well, I'll uh, let me say this real quick. So hold on to that. Um, anytime you talk about a composer, you talk about what a 
what the role of film music is. It's something that I that I have I spoke with a friend recently about that. Uh, it seems odd that we just like why is music so necessary in a film? We all just if a, if a movie doesn't have music, which is a very rare occurrence, but if it doesn't but have it music, happens. we view it as very strange. Like why did we? Maybe because of its origins in silent film, and they needed music. They needed something for people to listen to. Um, but then once sound effects and dialogue came along, music just stayed, and now it's viewed as an integral part of filmmaking, even though it is a completely separate art form. That always struck me as interesting. And so uh, so you, ha- you can have a lot of different types of uh, scores, and I'm a big fan of the score that that one could say maybe distracts a little bit from the proceedings, but also I think in doing so it gives you sometimes more than a hint. It tells you this is how you're supposed to think of what is happening on screen. And I think the omen is a really good example. I think without it, the film would seem much more inherently silly. Uh, but with it, suddenly it does seem like there, there are big things going on regardless of, again, what I might think of the film it lets you know this is a serious thing. What I was going to ask was, okay. did you see the 2006 remake of The Omen? I did not. Which came out on June 6, 2006, by the way. Of course. Um, okay, well, Marco, Marco Beltrami is the credited composer. Okay. But according to the t- soundtrack, um, they did use some of the, the, the music. Yeah, how could they not? In, the, in the remake. It actually, that makes me want to watch it it got That's the only thing that it got fairly good reviews and frankly i'm a big fan of Liev schreiber um so I, i'm a weirdly fan of julia styles even though no one else is for some reason hmm. i always feel like i'm defending julia styles always <laughs> like every <laughs> day like i wake up i wait like my eyes open in the morning like here we go again <laughs> just you and me julia you and me yeah. against the world um okay so we do need to move on and so uh the next two this works out very well. Goof. Sorry. What was that? Uh, 27% Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, okay. All the right. Omen. The Omen remake. Maybe just a handful of the, movie, of the reviews that I read thought it was... Uh, I don't think anybody ever said it was great, but uh, uh, I remember... Peop- I think Ebert might have said it, it was good, but I might be completely wrong on that. Maybe nobody liked it. Apparently only 27%. Uh, okay. So, we're going to go to ni- the year 1979, and we're going to talk about two separate... Uh, science fiction films. Here we go. Each one. I know what one of them is off the top of my head. Okay. One of the, good to know. I'll keep that in mind. Okay. Should we play a guessing game? What do you think it is? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's alien. Okay. That's correct. All right. Do you know what the other one is? Uh, no. Is it, um, I'm not, I can't even read that from here. All right. Is it, uh, the Andromeda strain? No. What year is that? I don't know. All right. What is it then? It is Star Trek, the motion picture. Ah, of course. Now, is that 79? Well, according to my phone, it is. Yes. Um, but yeah. And so these are two science fiction films and they're not. And by the way, they're not like adventure films. Um, you know, sci- I never saw the original Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, everyone oh. says it's boring, which, of course, means that's hard sci fi. Uh, it wouldn't be hard sci fi if there was an element of boredom. in it. Yeah, it's a little it's a little dull. Yeah, that's that's what I've heard. And so um, but you wouldn't you would never know that. From the music, which was so good that they used it for the theme song to Star Trek The Next Generation. That's how oh. good and propulsive and fun, and it just, again, this, it is not an adventure film, but the music sounds adventurous. It, like, it breathes new life into Star Trek. You know, it's just, because, I mean, the, the, 
the series was canceled, uh, and then years later they made a movie of it because the the, the characters in the series had had mm-hmm. gained in uh, popularity, and then they do this, and suddenly I'm trying to put myself in the in the mindset of somebody going to see Star Trek the motion picture, excited they actually made a movie of Star Trek, and then this music plays. I know it sounds strange, but part of me just feels like if I were that person at that time and this music played, I would think, kick ass, Star Trek in a movie theater, here we go. Okay, I'm excited. Yeah, it's. I know that I might be. I, I might be too hyperbolic about it, and that's the thing is because of Star Trek: Next Generation. I think we all got kind of got used to that music, so I wanted to try and put it in context that yeah. this is not the original theme song from Star Trek, just put to a larger orchestra. This is a completely new theme, almost as a way of heralding, like, yes, we're in movie theaters now. This is bigger. It's more exciting in theory, um, and I don't know. It's just a really. Uh, it's a really good theme, and I and again to the extent that people recognized how good it was and decided to use it again uh, for Next Generation, and so so that's one science fiction movie that he scored in that year. Can you guess what the other one is, Tyler? <sighs> Andromeda Strain. Yeah, no, that's nineteen seventy one. Oh, seventy one. Okay. Um, Anyone? Everyone knows that. <laughs> obviously, yes. Uh, okay. So the next one is, of course, Ridley Scott's Alien, which uh, the score is not. Uh, propulsive or fun or exciting. It is frightening, even with a, frightening in a completely different way than uh, the Omen. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, uh, Jerry Goldsmith, I, I think he like used bits of music from another score he had done years ago. I think about uh, I think about a movie about Sigmund Freud. Maybe I don't okay. remember exactly. Uh, I'm. Tr- this is like based on something that Ridley Scott had said in the DVD commentary, that, which I haven't listened to for years. Uh, so I think it, there, there are bits of music that are taken from other, uh, from other things that he did. But, and my first thought was like, well, that's a ripoff. But it's more just, I think, 
Jerry Goldsmith, who has shown himself to be capable of writing more than one score, <laughs> I think he recognized this. Okay, I know the mood that you're going for, and frankly, I've hit it already, and I'm going to do it again here. Uh, and so, and seems somehow appropriate if if that is in fact the uh, 100% accurate that Alien, a deeply psychological film, would borrow its score from a movie from a movie about Sigmund Freud. And so, but um, I also kind of wonder if he just like had overcommitted himself and like woke up one morning. He was like, oh, no, that scores do. <laughs> yeah, He's like running out of the house, like still brushing his teeth, tying yeah. his ties. I'm <laughs> sorry, Mr. Scott. My dog ate my score. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> oh, listeners, I wish you could see the visual of David. Just this harried guy, like with a loose tie and, you know, his coffee spilling as he runs yeah. to the car. Um so, uh, so yeah, what I like about this score is that it is quite minimalist, used to underscore just the vast, sad emptiness of space, and I would venture to say the emptiness of its characters' lives, uh, because these people do not strike me as being particularly happy. Um, but not that they're miserable either. They're just working, just working stiffs. That's one of the things I like about the movie. Um, and just... But there's also a, a slight in, with when the strings come in. Um, there's a I don't know. There there is a definite science fiction element and an element of I would venture to say discovery and and kind of the excitement of dis- discovery. But it doesn't overplay it because of course we know that the that the discovery made is a horrible one. And it's not merely the discovery of the aliens. The discovery that your life is not actually worth anything to the company that employs you. I think we should listen to it before you go any further. Absolutely.
Okay, so to me, that music just gives me chills. Uh, it is, I don't know, it, it just works so well for me. And at this point, um, I associate it so much with the movie. Um, and, when, and when you compare it to uh, James Horner's score for Aliens, first off, that, going to what I was saying earlier, that, uh, that a film score kind of lets you know the genre and the, and the mood of the film you're in, I mean... Compare Jerry Goldsmith's Alien score to James Horner's Aliens score, and you see the difference between yeah. a, a melancholy, moody science fiction film and a, and an action yeah. film. I mean, it's completely different. I, I love, by the way, I love James Horner's score for Aliens. I think it's wonderful. Um, I do too. I don't have a great memory for scores, so it um, means something that that one stands out. Oh, to absolutely. Me. I mean, I, I I remember I actually uh, purchased that score. Here's a fun. I, this is a tangent about James Horner, but that's all right. Um, so years ago, uh, when I was in my my church youth group in Denver, we put on a play called Catacombs, which is kind of a, an end times piece, which I wasn't super excited about. But it's actually written pretty well. It's a chamber piece, which I always like. Um, and the youth pastor, who is the director, uh, he wanted there's an intermission and he wanted a piece of music in there that was kind of intriguing and that he wanted to kind of be, I don't think he used the word propulsive, but that's what he was, that's what he meant. And, um, and he actually purchased, he goes, you know what? The only movie, the only, the only like piece of music I can think of is is from the movie aliens. (laughs) And so he went and bought the soundtrack to aliens and we played a piece of music in, in the intermission. And I said like, and his name is Randy. And I said, Randy, I wish you'd let me know. I own the soundtrack. I could have lent it to you. Like, you didn't have to go. Like, the church didn't have to re- comp you that money. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, even in the, uh, you know, that music works, whether it be uh, in Die Hard, which they re- they repurposed a piece of music for that, it's or the part, in this End Times uh, uh, play, Christian play. In Die Hard, it's the, the, the blonde guy. You think he's dead. Mm-hmm. You think everything's over. Everyone's happy. And then he comes back out and... Reginald Bill Johnson shoots him. That's is that is that the moment? Uh, I thought I thought it comes with a big. Ex- it's it's at the during when there's like the big roof explosion. Oh, is it okay? Maybe I'm getting confused because if it's the piece of music I'm thinking of in Aliens, it's literally when the planet blows up and they're getting and they're getting away. Okay, but, anyway. but this is a big moment. I heard it's the guy bursting out. Oh, he's absolutely. been choked on the chain. He's like bursting yeah. out, and he's like sort of still kind of wobbly, and he levels the like submachine gun or whatever at. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, spoilers, Reginald Bill Johnson. He totally killed that guy. Wastes him. <laughs> right. I like when you and I revert to our 14-year-old selves. <laughs> yeah. Totally kills that guy. Wastes him. 
It's kick ass. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so the 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 score. I I realize I just talked about James Horner, but the score to Alien <laughs> is it really it really sets the mood, which is important because the movie itself sets the mood for a long time before the quote unquote action kicks in. Right, and so you're just uneasy when you listen to it, and you know that like nothing good is going to happen today. This is a sad thing. So, uh, so I love it. And so, uh, so that's, that was 1979, two, two science fiction films with completely different tones and he managed to hit, hit them perfectly. Moving on, 1990, uh, sorry, 1982, Poltergeist. Oh, I love this one. Toby Hooper film. Uh, and another arguably, depending on how you classify Alien, the third horror film on this list. That is, uh, yes, that is true. And I think Alien has a, definitely has a, a horror quality. I think it. of it as a horror film more than a science fiction film, I think. I think in this, in this case, uh, it, I think it's both, uh, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, but Poltergeist, to stay on track, yeah. is one of my favorite horror films of all time. It's easily, up there for me. Literally easily top five horror films for me. Yeah. Poltergeist is amazing. And I remember th- there are people that say, like, eh, that movie's not that scary. A tree eats... A child. Yeah. Now he turns out okay. That doesn't change. And right after, I think, shortly after a a, cl- a big clown doll, which by the way shouldn't be in any kid's room anyway. Yeah, what were those parents thinking? I know. Well, that's why. Yeah, because they're pothead parents. That's that's why. what it is. They didn't, yeah, they're not making. That's really decisions. what Poltergeist is all about. Yeah, his parent shouldn't smoke. You know, parents who have drugs have kids who do drugs. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that's what we learned. They learned it by watching their parents. Exactly. Yeah. That, it was all hallucination. That's what it is. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, David, come on. When was the last time you were, you had like a bad trip and you, and you felt like uh, a tree was eating you. It happens to me like, all the time. 13 years ago. Fair enough. Um, um, but yeah. And so, uh, the, now this was one that, um, West and I agreed on, uh, but he, picked the specific yeah which music. music is this what's happening in the scene this is called this uh this track is simply called the light uh and i believe it's when uh now i don't know exactly because i haven't seen the movie in a while but once i heard this piece of music i was like ah i remember this it's wonderful and i think this is when we're going through the house and we're seeing uh shoot what is the little girl's name it's a very it's very it's i know the name of the actress was it heather o'rourke heather o'rourke yeah yeah and um yeah i can't remember it's like it's like a two name name but anyway uh and so i think it's when she's uh maybe talking to the tv and responding only to voices that she's hearing um but yeah and it's just uh it's very it's moody but you know what's neat about it (laughs) carol ann carol ann that's it of course um what's neat about it is that and you know i might be projecting too much onto the film uh, onto the score uh, in this case, because yes, it is a Toby Hooper film, but it is also a Spielberg film mm-hmm. in many ways. And, and this, this piece of music feels Spielbergian in many ways. Well, now you get into the Hollywood lore about who really directed Poltergeist. Cause that's, well, what I'll say is I think, I mean, you've got a guy ripping his own face off. You have a clown attacking a kid. You've got a big uh, demon head coming out of a portal, and you got a tree eating a kid. And, and a, Toby Hooper had his mo- yeah. had his moments. Swimming pool, swimming pool full of skeletons. Yeah, let's yeah. not forget that part. Yeah, I think I think there's. It could be argued that uh, Steven Spielberg certainly had a hand in things because he was, you know, certainly that was right around the time as Raiders of the Lost Ark. He was not opposed to some gruesome imagery and mm-hmm. and frights and stuff like that. And so. Um, so yeah, but that's but he definitely I think 
this does in many ways feel tonally like a Spielberg film, a, a scary one. Um, but it feels like it, um, you know, well, it has family the, in the suburbs. The yeah, that, that suburban American yeah. thing. And so this piece of music, it is moody, it is eerie, but it also, it doesn't feel, it's going to sound very strange, it doesn't feel hopeless. It doesn't feel cynical and there's, I don't know, I, it's hard to explain. There, I mean, it's setting it's setting the tone just as much as the music from Alien is. But to me, and again, I might be just projecting what I know of each film onto the music, but I feel like there's a different tone in each one. I think Jerry Goldsmith recognized this is a scary movie, but it is one that is ostensibly for families, and it's about a family. It's PG. Um, So I need to strike a slightly different tone, one that is a, a little bit more friendly, a little bit more optimistic. It's hard to explain, but it's there. So we'll play it now. This is tr- the track. I don't remember what number, but it's The Light from Poltergeist. Okay. Um, real quick, me- memory of Poltergeist of the the DVD that I have. Mm-hmm. I think I bought at the Blockbuster in Chicago okay. that you used to work at. Right. I think it was one of the one times I came to see you at your, at your work yeah. in Chicago. Just a good. Uh, I know there are people who like the, the David and Tyler backstory. You know, we tease it out like this is you know an episode of Lost or whatever. Uh, but there, we have listeners who like to hear about our backstory. By the way, you worked at a blockbuster in Chicago, maybe more than one. I worked at uh, two, sometimes a third. Okay, yeah. uh, one of them is where I bought my Poltergeist DVD. You know, uh, just now when you said the t- David and Tyler backstory, it almost sounded like you said t- David and Tyler backs story. 
<laughs> like we're married and I took your name. Yeah, that's that's the video that's going to show at our anniversary party. <laughs> Speaking of anniversaries, happy anniversary. Thank you very Nine much. Nine years? Nine years. Yeah, that's not one people usually make a big deal about, right? Uh, no, and the only reason it was a big deal is because we chose to go to a baseball game. So it was uh, Not just any baseball game. That is true. This was an interesting one, yes. Angels and the Twins. Yeah, the Angels. Basically, the... your team and Jenny's team. Yeah. Playing on your anniversary? Yeah. That's pretty fantastic. Nine innings, nine years. That's awesome. Twins versus Angels. It, it, it if it had gone into, into extra innings, though, you would have been like, gosh. God. <laughs> no, we would have been like, so we got to stay married longer? Because, <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're calling it quits after this. I mean, <laughs> you're not going to beat that. Yeah. And so, um, okay, so I think we will move on, and we're going to skip ahead considerably to 1993 with uh, a suggestion that, uh, that I made, um, much to my surprise. You surprised yourself with this one. Yes, I did. Because, first off... West must have lost his shit. Uh, you know what? I can't speak for West, but yes, I'm, undoubtedly <laughs> he did. Uh, he responded in all caps. Uh, it was very off-putting. I think he even changed the font. And so, uh, this is Dennis the Menace. <laughs> wow. Yeah, 1993. And so, as I was looking through Jerry Goldsmith's filmography... Uh, to see what I wanted on there, I saw Dennis the Menace on there, and I, and I remember thinking like the music for the for a long time I thought the music for Dennis the Menace was was very good. Even at the time, I thought this is really memorable music. Um, but instinctively, because Dennis the Menace is so similar to Home Alone, I instinctively thought that it was John Williams. Mm. But then, when I saw it was Jerry Goldsmith, I thought interesting. To my knowledge, he doesn't do a lot of kids movies. So I went and downloaded the soundtrack or a, a couple of tracks from it. Um, and as I listened to it, I realized this is completely Jerry Goldsmith. How could I ever think it was John Williams, especially as I got older and thought back on it? It does sound very much like Jerry Goldsmith, but it also has a very, dif- a very distinct sound to it that I think sort of personified family films of the 90s, certainly the early 90s, that you would find in Home Alone. It's just, there are mm-hmm. big, boisterous bursts of music, but he also, you know, a, a lot of the, the bits of music that, we're, that we've picked are, like, opening titles music. And they set the tone, and this, and this is the opening title music from Dennis the Menace, so uh, we'll play it now, and then we'll uh, talk about it afterwards.
All right. All right. So uh, so what I like about that is that happens during the opening credits when we're seeing little bits of the city uh, and the neighborhood where Dennis lives. And what I like about it, as far as the music goes, uh, there are the big, boisterous, frankly, Home Alone types, uh, t- you know, bits in there. But then there is this harmonica that kicks in and there's a definite theme. And it really feels like the music from... You know, I don't. I don't remember if the if the world of Dennis the Menace takes place in any particular city or if it's just kind of an anonymous midwestern city. Um, but it feels like anonymous midwestern city. This could be any city. Um, and then, just the use of harmonica, it feels like it feels kind of old timey in a way, which is which stands to reason because we're dealing with a kid who. You know, pulls a wagon with old uh, cans dragging behind it. And he's got a slingshot in his pocket. Like it's, I mean, despite the fact that it was made with a Home Alone mentality and it was made in 1993, everything about the character of Dennis the Menace is very much Little Rascals. Uh, you know, uh, 1930s and 40s, um, maybe even 50s. And so, uh, so the music seems to harken back to almost an Americana type of thing. And so uh, that's setting, uh, again, that is setting the stage for uh, how we should approach the character of Dennis and the character of Mr. Wilson and how we're hearkening back, not merely with the character, but also the city itself and the type of story we're going to watch to, I would venture to say, a more innocent time. Again, it goes back to that Americana quality. And so, not that um, we're endorsing the idea that the '50s was a more innocent time. I mean, it ob- obviously it was, but um, <laughs> I'm joking, things were better course. then. It, they just were, you know. For, for people like we were us, fighting communists, right? You knew who you were fighting against, David. That's <laughs> the key. Um, also, men and women knew their places. Yeah. Right. Men worked until they died of heart, heart attacks. <laughs> just and women miserable. never left the house unless their husbands allowed them to or they needed groceries. Or they needed groceries, <laughs> right. you know. And hey, 30 years before that, not even for the groceries. So I feel like progress was being made in the 1950s. Uh, and then yes. I got a there's such a thing as too much progress is what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Obviously, we are being we're joking. Everything in the past is terrible. Anyway, uh and we should never go back to any of it. Uh, forward, moving, always. Moving yeah, on. Yeah, I, see, now we're not joking anymore. Indeed. That's all serious. Indeed. Stand, down a cl- stand at the edge of a cliff and just move right forward. Mm-hmm. I'm joking, of course. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Later than I expected. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, oh, D- uh, Dennis Smith. Anyway, so uh, did you see Dennis the Menace when you were when a kid? When I was a kid, I okay. saw it probably more than once. Yeah. Christopher Lloyd is in it. Christopher Lloyd plays the villain, and I was torn, David, if I wanted to play his villain theme music. Oh, okay. Or uh, the theme. And I chose the theme because the villain theme music was something that I feel like we'd kind of heard before and maybe something that we would hear in this episode. But I don't know. I, don't, I feel like Jerry Goldsmith did not do a lot of family films. And this one definitely has that quality to it, and I and I really like it. I think it's I think it works really well. Uh, so we will move on. We got two more movies to get to. Earlier, yes, this is the one you teased earlier. Yes, I mentioned something that sound that could feel dated, but I view it as embracing the time period, uh, not of the film because it was modern day, but uh, just this is what comedies and romantic comedies felt like 
in the mid-90s. Okay. So we're talking about Fierce Creatures, starring uh, the cast of Fish Called Wanda in a film that doesn't have nearly the teeth that a Fish Called Wanda did. But I remember uh, I was still kind of new to movies, uh-huh. and I saw Fierce Creatures in the, uh, in the theater, and I loved it. I thought it was great. It was one of the first like real farces that I was aware of. You didn't watch a lot of Three's Company? I did up? not. In fact, I had no patience for it. Really? I think it just stressed me out, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching a lot of Three's Company reruns when I was a kid. Man. You know what? And not like getting a lot of the sexual humor of it probably going over my head. Oh, no question Even though now that. when I look at it, it's very like tame and demure. Yeah, yeah. And obvious. Obvious yeah, as hell. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it got to the point where I so didn't like the show that I even hated the opening song the the theme song oh just man. the way it starts it's just it's so man me back <laughs> I, I we should be whoever wrote that music we should do a profile episode on that guy again. you know what i predict i'll i won't be feeling well that day <laughs> you can talk about it with west um and so uh so yeah what was i just oh fierce creatures and so we we're gonna look up who wrote the three's company <laughs> that's the one yeah you, you look that up enjoy um, so what I like about Fierce Creatures is that it is a farce and it's, and it's fun and it's pleasant. But what I will say is that there's not like major stakes to it. Uh, it's just kind of a relationship type of thing. Uh, it's not a romantic comedy by any stretch, but there is that quality to it. And as such, the music, which again, I mean, you listen to this, it sounds very nineties comedy to me. Uh, but it's very pleasant and it's, I don't know. It, it lets you know that this is just going to be a pleasant, fun experience. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not going to, it's probably not going to offend your sensibilities. It's just going to be mellow. And at the end of the movie, you will walk out thinking, I had a good time with that. And I know that sounds like damning with faint praise, except he captures the spirit of that completely. And the weird thing is, I mean, I'd seen that movie a few times, uh, like probably two or three times in my life. And that bit of me, I haven't seen it in, I'm going to say 14, 15 years. Um, but that, this piece of music has been in my head that long. I knew this specific piece of music and I knew it was Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, have we played it yet? No, we haven't. Okay. Played it yet. <laughs> All right. So this is, uh, one of, uh, two or three, uh, like themes. And this one is called Willa's theme. So we will play that right now.
Okay. All right. Uh, so, yeah, I enjoy that a lot. I don't think I have much more to say about it. So we will end. Well, real quick, I want to say. Okay. Mind-blowing here. The guy who wrote the theme for Three's Company is named Joe Raposo. You know everyone listening, probably, I guess, if they're Americans, probably, um, knows another TV theme song he wrote, which is the Sesame Street theme. Same guy wrote those two themes. Died in 89 at the young age of 51 of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Oh, man. That is unfortunate. Yeah. And uh, so what else did he... Hats off to you, Joe Raposo. Actually, don't answer that. Don't answer what else did he write, because uh, that'll take us down a... Because that's something that fascinates me. Okay, he wrote... I don't know about themes. Okay. But as far as other TV work, he wrote music for The Electric Company, Shining Time Station. So clearly he did a lot of, like, kids' stuff. And and then also Three's Company and The Ropers, which was the Mm spinoff. Okay. Interesting. But I guess he had a musical career uh, outside of that. Well, good for him. I mean... You know, things went sour uh, in his life. Yeah, poor. Know. Yeah. So that's unfortunate. Bad, but, but he has a legacy, you know, writing one theme song that I don't care for and one that I do. So with that uh, Sesame Street theme. Um, keeping the clouds away, David. That's a, that's a lyric, right? Yeah. Okay. Sunny day. Uh, okay. Moving on. Last is a movie that is not very good. Wait, after Fierce Creatures and Dennis the Menace, you're going to make a hard left into not good movies? First off, <laughs> Fierce Creatures is a perfectly fine film, and Dennis the Menace, though an obvious uh, Home Alone ripoff, has genuinely good moments, and Walter Matthau is unsurprisingly great in it. He's a really good Mr. Wilson. Because um, he's curmudgeonly, David. I mean, I'm sure I'm not, you know, that's no surprise to anybody. Um but what I will say is the film Hollow Man is not very good. And I will say... It's beyond that very good. I really... Okay, so you've seen it. I really don't like Hollow okay. Man. I saw it in the theater. It's a Paul Verhoeven film. Yeah, it's uh, a rare misstep. Uh, Paul Verhoeven is a director that I really like. Here's the things that I like about Hollow Man, and they're all about premise. Uh, not so much execution. Although maybe some of that a little bit. Um, I, I For some reason... Um, I'm fascinated at, okay, uh, this is dumb. What I'm about to say is dumb, so just get ready for that. I love stories about invisible people. Um, <laughs> there's not a lot of them, um, but I'm Harry fasc- Potter. Harry Potter, The That's Invisible Man. Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Yes, I love that. John Carpenter <laughs> I film. I saw it. I don't oh, hang on. Think Sorry. Great. There are things I don't love about it. It's not that lovable of a <laughs> okay. film. But um, first off, I think one of the reasons that I like it is that there's always the fun. It's always a fun opportunity to see special effects, usually cutting, usually cutting edge effects for the time. Right. Yeah. Um, which true. is, which is neat. I, I enjoy that. Um, and also, uh, just this idea that there are, that you can just do things and people don't see you, but then there's also ramifications to that. And I like any movie that, uh, and, uh, uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, one of the things that I like about it is that it explores what it would be like to be this. Like, for example, a character, he has to wear a sleep mask because he can see through his eyelids. So, oh. you know, so there's no such thing as closing your eyes when you're invisible. Right. I think they might have mentioned that in the Claude Rains Invisible Man as well. But, um, and um, then, like, you got to make sure that uh, your fingernails are clean. Otherwise, people will just see those little bits of dirt walking towards them. 
So stuff like that is neat. That's interesting. Um, you know, whenever you finally get around to watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, okay. a uh, then unknown Clea Duvall played a, an invisible oh. girl in an early episode. Oh, neat. Okay. Yeah. Was, that a, was that a neat episode? Uh, yeah. Of course it was. There's an invisible person in it. <laughs> that was a trick question, Dave. Uh, and so... It also has... That episode has an awesome ending that never went anywhere, but I don't care and I won't spoil it for you because someday you'll watch it. Someday I will. Yeah. No question about it. Uh, and so... What I what I do like again in premise about Hollow Man, not unlike Joe Dante's uh, The Howling, is that it understands because up until The Howling, every werewolf movie was about how much these people hate being werewolves and how much they just want to die. And then he seemed to understand that well, somebody might like it. Somebody might like the moral liberation that comes with just being these animals and that sort of thing. So that's what that movie's about. With Hollow Man now. Uh, it's not unheard of for invisible men and women uh, to go crazy, uh, but it's almost always like a like the Claude Rains Invisible Man like kind of went crazy like in general and decided like I'm gonna maybe play some tricks on people, but in, invariably I'm going to like hurt large numbers of people. But in actuality, wh- I like any movie that or any story that understands that there will be people who use certain powers or whatever for very petty small things mm-hmm. like they like it's almost their lack of ambition is notable <laughs> and what i like about hollow man is that you know uh kevin bacon's character the serum makes him go a little bit crazy but also the idea of no, nobody ever seeing him i mean you and i speak regularly about the, the imp of the perverse uh-huh. and the idea that imagine i wonder how many of us our morality is contingent on people seeing us and people aware of what we are doing. And so I think it's a combination of him going crazy from the experiments, but also the realization that I can do things with relative impunity and with almost no consequence. And so there's a lot of, as one would expect from a Paul Verhoeven film, there's some sexuality going on Mm -hmm. in which he like spies on women and that sort of thing. And so again, I, I like, that premise, uh, the script is not very good, and the movie winds up being like pretty dumb. The effects are wonderful. Yeah, but it's there's a scene uh, where he jumps into a swimming pool, and that's pretty amazing to see. That is cool. But yeah, the movie I think it it's paced all wrong. Like, yeah, I mean, I think he tilts into crazy a little too quickly, and then there's no like denouement to that ending. There's just like that big thing. Like, uh, it's I, I saw it in the theater, and I haven't seen it since. But it's yeah. like. The conversation where they're in an elevator, right? Or an elevator shaft, yeah. right? And then they get up to the surface or whatever, and the ambulances are there or whatever, and then the credits roll. There's, like... I remember it ending very abruptly. Uh, yeah, I felt I like everything it, about it was... Like, Verhoeven and the screenwriter wanted to get into and out of showing off the effects and having cra- crazy stuff happen way oh. too quickly, and the movie suffered because of it because it has no sense of structure or pacing. Uh, that is true, yes. Uh, it felt like uh, an excuse for special effects, which certainly that's not the first time that type of thing has been done with any movie, but uh, but yeah. Uh, one thing I remember about that elevator sequence you talked about is uh, like the elevator itself gets... There's like an explosion and it goes shooting up, uh, and it takes a chunk out of Josh Brolin's shoulder. Oh, is it Josh Brolin's shoulder? Yeah. Okay. In my memory, it was Elizabeth Shue's shoulder. 
no, I think, it's, I think it's his. But okay. uh, Yeah, I remember that. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, that's a big chunk of meat just out of his shoulder. He's yeah. never going to get that back. Yeah. Um, Do you remember in the lift when the uh, counterweights whacked Adelar in the head? I did not see the lift with <laughs> you. You never saw the lift. I think lift. that was you and Keith. <laughs> yes. For people who might not be longtime listeners, the lift is a, no, I can't remember what, is it Dutch? I believe so, but I might be wrong I on that. Think, I want to say it's a Dutch film, uh, a horror film about an elevator that um, becomes possessed by an evil spirit or something. Yeah. It kills people. The tagline was, take the stairs, take the stairs, for God's sake, take the stairs. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you're right. My friend Keith and I watched it in a dorm room my yeah. freshman year of college. And then he, he wrote the his floor in the dorm by the elevator had like a whiteboard and you could leave notes for people. And he just wrote next to the elevator, take the stairs, take the stairs for God's sake, take the stairs. It's the corniest. Uh, it's one of my favorites. So bad. It's good movies ever. Mm-hmm. Cause it's about an elevator that kills people. And, um, there is one part, uh, I don't know who, I don't know if the sound designer was just in a prankish mood or just realized the movie was kind of crappy, but the part where like the elevator shoots down real quick so that the counterweight goes up and whacks Adelar, our hero, in the head, and this this sound effect was like whoop, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, yeah. And then also um, the character's name is Adelar, and he always answers the phone with his name, so he answers Adelar, which. Yeah, my friend Keith and I did for about a year. <laughs> no matter who was calling, this is before caller. We had caller ID. We would just answer the phone at LR all the time. Isn't college fun? Yeah, <laughs> like you would just do that. I, I would, when the phone in my dorm room rang, I would answer at LR because every fifth time, maybe it was Keith, and he yeah. would crack up. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. Okay. We'll play the music from Hollow Man in a moment. Yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, I remember for a long time your outgoing message on your phone was just quotes from movies that you would record uh-huh. so one was uh, of course uh, I'll show you the life of the mind yeah. from Barton Fink one was from Road to Perdition with Dylan Baker saying I want I think I like I want a hard boiled egg and I want it runny or something like that <laughs> yeah. which is not f- possible um, and I don't remember no, what the other yeah. ones were but I don't uh, remember no yeah but I, I had forgotten about that Road to Perdition one I love Dylan yeah. Baker's line there yeah that's a yeah and then it's weird how something can be that much a part of your life. Dylan Baker ordering an egg from room service. Yeah. And then you forget about it. Yeah. And then my outgoing message for about a week. And then a lot of people got confused was me answering. was me leaving a message on somebody else's saying, Hey, it's Tyler. I was just calling to see how everything was going. Um, you know, I'll be, I'll be home most of the night. So if you want to give me a call back, uh, I'll be here. So uh, I'll just talk to you later. So that was my outgoing message. Yeah. And I got a lot of really confused messages. Uh, I and that. I decided, like, I can't practically do that. Yes. But it was delightful. College. Day. Yeah. College. For a while. Fun. Yeah. I remember for a while I also had the coming to get you, Barbara, as my That's outgoing yes. message. Yeah. Yes. I forgot about the Road of Perdition one. I, w- I wish that I were not in my 30s so I could change my outgoing message oh. to the Road to Perdition quote again. Yeah, I, I wish I could do things without uh, any, like just silly things without any practical consequence. <laughs> um, okay, so Hollow Man, uh, oh, right. ba- back to business. Uh, one thing that I do like about it is that um, I remember, regardless of the movie that followed, I remember the the opening credit sequence in general is good, uh, and the music is very, the only word to use to, it, that I can use is eerie. It's very eerie. And it feels not merely old timey. It feels like 
music that would accompany the Claude Rains Invisible Man. Like it just has it feels like the music of a mad scientist doing experiments. Um and uh and maybe just progressively losing his mind. Uh the the movie is not at all worthy of this music. Um <laughs> but uh and what's more is and you know what, maybe this is on Jerry Goldsmith. I don't know. I feel like uh the music doesn't the music sets a mood that the film does not pay off. And so maybe that's on Jerry Goldsmith that he should have tried to capture the mood of the film that is there as opposed to the mood of the film that I wish were there. But whatever. I don't care. The music is good. And the music works for the premise. Uh, and I don't know. It's It, it makes me wish that the movie were better. Um, so here is the, the opening themes from Hollow Man. So as we wrap up here, um, I'm looking at the list because I've been making the list, you know, and you have the list in front of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
we ended, as we mentioned, with Dennis the Menace, Fierce Creatures, and Halloween. We even had The Omen in there. We had Star Trek. A lot of movies that aren't upper echelon movies in terms of critical or audience consensus. Yeah. Uh, in which Jerry Goldsmith was the best part of them. Uh, yeah. I, just, <laughs> I, mean, I wonder if that's um, part of his legacy, that he was able to stand out. I mean, I, you've talked about your favorite actor. I don't know if you, is Robert Duvall still your favorite actor? Would yes. you still say, uh, I mean, he's great in movies like gone in 60 seconds. Like, yeah. So Jerry Goldsmith is essentially the Robert Duvall of composers. He could be great. You in know what? I, bad stuff. I agree with you completely. And I would say, um, and that, and again, that is not a slam on him at all, but that's the thing is I think, I don't, I don't know how it could have been taken as one. Well, because it's just, because one could make the argument that, like, well, he chooses bad projects. But he doesn't. Okay. Yeah. And he, He's got 250 credits. Yeah. There's some good ones in there. <laughs> there's one or two. Um, and you know what? Here's, here's – and this might sound insulting, but now that you've called him the, the Robert Duvall of composers, I think that's a, that's a great analogy. Here's what I was going to say. He is the Pepsi to John Williams Coke. But now, expl- to people like me who okay. taste no difference between the two, okay, uh, explain that you and my fiance, like my fiance swears, and I'm gonna ch- test sometime that she could do a blind t- t- taste test and know the difference difference between Coke and Pepsi. Pepsi is a little bit sweeter. Um, uh, I, but, I, I don't taste any difference. But I think more. I'm in this case. I'm actually talking more about the brand. Um, in that, if you were to ask people like who's the best composer. The film composer of all time. Now, I mean, people might say Bernard Herrmann. They might say any number of things. Elmer Bernstein. Um, but John Williams would be up there. Uh-huh. And I think as far as modern composers, I think he's near the top, if not the top. And rightfully so. I mean, how many of like the best musical themes of all time, whether it be from the 70s, 80s, 90s or now, yeah. he's he's got them. Uh, he's and like Jack so- F.M. He's like Jack FM. He's, yeah. He conducts in a conducts in a dumpy little building in Culver City. <laughs> what a bunch of okay. It's fine. I, I hate those ads. It's okay. So, um, but uh, and so I feel like Jerry Goldsmith is somebody who, not unlike Robert Duvall, as opposed to like a let's say De Niro or Pacino or something like that. Somebody same generation came to prominence around the same time. Turns out work that in many ways is just as good. But just a little bit lower profile. Very few people – I mean it's it's been a joke for years. Very few people say, I'd like a Pepsi. They'll right. say, I'd like a Coke. And then they say, is Pepsi okay? And the answer is, of course, yes, it's fine. Yeah. But not merely fine. It's <laughs> I would ask, I would have asked for a Pepsi if I thought to ask for a Pepsi. And I feel bad. I feel like I'm, I'm bashing Jerry Goldsmith. It's just that he never got to be quite as high profile – but he is amazing. Mm-hmm. He can, I mean, we just talked about, he can adapt to almost any genre um, and then do wonderful work within that genre. It's not that he merely adapts. It's that he makes that kind of iconic in many ways. And so, uh, so it is in a way, it's almost like, uh, I don't know. I, t- I, th- I kind of root for the, not even an underdog, but like, I like Duvall instead of De Niro. I like Carter Burwell instead of Danny Elfman. I like Jerry Goldsmith instead of John Williams, even though Danny Elfman, John Williams, and, and uh, Robert De Niro are amazing. Right. But there's something about me that's just like, yeah, Jerry Goldsmith, damn right. He's amazing. Let's play, let's play music from him. <laughs> you know, uh, he's, he was a wonderful composer. And again, the, we may do a supplemental episode with Wes in which we talk about 10 completely different uh, 
soundtrack of scores. And those, in many ways, could be just as good as the ones we picked here. Um, he's that he was that good uh, of a composer. And so go back and I mean, we listen to some of them here. We we listen to Gremlins and The Shadow. Go back and find some of his stuff. Uh, you won't be disappointed. He was a wonderful composer. I was very happy. It's unfortunate that Wes couldn't be here, but I was very happy that he suggested him. All right. All this right. was fun. This is a blast. I Indeed. hope people had fun listening to uh, all the selections. I hope no one sues us. And I hope that you go to battleshippretension.com where you can find all of our movie reviews. This week we got a bunch up. Yeah, I um, know. And I, yeah, uh, I mentioned Roman Polanski's Venus and Fur. That'll be up. My review of that will be up by the time you, uh, you, you hear this. Um, there'll be a review up of my favorite movie of 2014 so far. Watch out. David Wayne's They Came Together. Indeed. Uh, that's already up as of this recording. Um, Matt's review of The Internet's Own Boy. Reader's review of A Coffee in Berlin. What is that all this week? I, I feel like there's one? one more notable one, but I can't remember. Okay. Um, so yeah, check all those out at battleshipretention.com as well as links to all the other podcasts in the BP fleet. You can email us, David at battleshipretention.com or Tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me on Twitter at The Pretension. You can follow uh, Tyler on Twitter at More Lessons. That's the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is at morethanonelesson.com. What's going on over there? Well, um, the most recent episode is about a film that I think you enjoy. Uh, speaking of the aforementioned Robert Duvall, uh, we talk about The Apostle. I do love that movie. Um, Josh, I like that movie. Josh is out of town, so my friend uh, Reed Lackey took his place, and he uh, suggested the film, which is one that we'd been meaning to talk about for a while. And so uh, Reed and I have a, a what I thought was a really good discussion about uh, a film that is marvelous. I'm a big fan of The Apostle. So you can find that at morethanonelesson.com. Okay, my other podcast is the weekly television podcast, Hey, Watch This, with Paul and David. That's Paul, the king of TV, Goble, uh, that I do that show with. This week, we'll be talking about the aforementioned Teen Wolf, the series, mm-hmm. starting its fourth season. Time flies as you get older. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, I didn't realize that it was on its fourth season. But starting its fourth season this week, and we also talked about um, the premiere of the TNT series, The Last Ship, which, spoilers, is ridiculous. <laughs> What's it about? Uh, the, here, here's the thing. You're going to like the premise. I okay. like the premise, too. All right. um, it's a naval ship that goes off. Uh, they go radio silent for four months because they're going into the Arctic to do some weapons testing, right? Okay. And they also have um, some uh, scientists studying birds, like Arctic birds, on okay. board. They're, like, tagging along like for the penguins? trip. Like uh, penguins? Whatever. Some, whatever kind of Arctic bird. No, that's Antarctica. Are there oh, okay. penguins in the Arctic as well? There I don't could know. Be. I don't Arctic know. Arctic puffins? I think there might have been some puffins. Okay. Um, will that shut, shut you up, maybe? Um, okay. Uh, mostly because I can't think of any other bird it so, could be. So, they're studying, like, Arctic birds or whatever. And then they're radio sound for four months. And then it turns out that team isn't studying Arctic birds. Um, and the weapons testing was a ruse. And the uh, the Navy and the government lied to this entire crew. Really, this is about the fact that while they've been gone on this trip for four months, there's been an epidemic killing 80% of the population. And these bird scientists or whatever, quote unquote, are actually CDC specialists who are going to uh, study the birds in the Arctic where they think the virus started. So four months of radio contact and suddenly they realize almost no one is left alive in the world and they're stuck um, out there. The secretary of state is 
the president now because the president and the vice president, whoever else, hmm. have all uh, succumbed, and they have they have what they think they need to get a cure, but they don't know how to do anything with it. With the, all they have is a lab on the ship, and they don't know if any of the world is safe either because of the disease or because of the anarchy and rioting that's happening among the survivors. Uh, it's Two, okay. a pretty awesome premise, Two right? Things, great premise. Yeah, I really like it. Uh-huh. Second thing, this can't be a series, right? Is it a miniseries? Uh, I don't know how they're going to... I mean, uh, I, I think I think after, like, Under the Dome was a success, I think maybe networks don't want to, like, advertise things as miniseries because they want... Hey, if it's successful, maybe we'll yeah. finagle a way to bring it back. Because it's the same thing with Under the Dome. It should have been a one-season thing, yeah. and it's back for a second season this summer. Meanwhile, I mean, it got terrible reviews Under the Dome. I mean, But it did well... Yeah, for a summer network show, it did well enough to get a second season. That's the thing that gets me. I mean, again, you're you're more the TV guy than I am uh, by a pretty wide margin. And more than anything, anytime I hear a premise, even a great premise, uh-huh. my first thought is like, "That's." I mean, you can't you can't turn that into a real TV show. I mean, that's not. <laughs> maybe if this were the BBC and, you, and each season is six episodes, yeah, maybe that, then. Uh, I kind of agree with you that high concept stuff is uh, sort of. Um, I don't know of the moment. Uh, yeah. I, I say of the moment, but it's still it's ten years later. It's still the repercussions of lost. Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, but um, you know, people have learned networks and and I think in a lot of ways viewers have learned all the wrong lessons from lost. They don't realize what actually made that show a success, which yeah. is not the high concept and the self-contained what have you. It was the things that have always made TV shows a success, which is great characters and fantastic storytelling on a micro level as well as a macro level. Also, Uh, that's the thing is high concept. I'm sorry. We're, we're no, but this is an interesting conversation to me. Uh, high concept can mean one of two things. And I think one is good and one is bad, especially for a TV show. Some high concepts are are very specific, and the more specific they are, the more limiting they are. Weird Desert Island, you can do so much with that. Like, this is a disease thing. They have the cure. The world is anarchic, and so maybe they will return to that, and then it becomes living in this type of world. That opens it up a little bit, a little bit more, and you can do more with it. But if they're, if the whole thing is that they're just on this ship... That's limiting. And I feel like after and because the nature of a ship is that it's always going somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so eventually you arrive, you know, yeah. and I feel like so somehow by being more specific, which is true to the concept, you're actually limiting yourself as far as getting more episodes out of it. Right. Battlestar Galactica did it, by the way. I mean, they found out how to make a make a show out of oh, people abso- on a ship. Absolutely. Yes. But it's also in the con- in the context of war and wars at the very least. The whole, you want them to, like, the characters want them to end. So they are working towards something that, and it's either the destruction of them or the enemy. And so there's a very definite end. And so there's, so while they are always going somewhere, it's not about, in that case, it's not about uh, geography. It's about uh, the time in which they live, which could go on forever. I mean, wars last 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes longer. And so, uh, I know that hundred years war lasted a while. Um, actually 116 years. Damn it, David. 
Why do you got to ruin my... All right, fair enough. 116 years, you son of a bitch. But it's, it's called the 100 Years War, but I'm pretty sure I had that number right. I think it's 116 years. All right, fair enough. But yeah. <laughs> I could it, be making it up. All right. Um, and even under, the, even under the Dome could have worked, because I watched an episode or two of that, and it's like, all right, it's like Twin Peaks. It's, uh, it's just exploring the dynamics of a town once this thing has happened. And after a while, the, the Dome itself, while being the extenuating circumstance that can sort of be viewed viewed as a common denominator that can be pushed aside so that the so that we just see what the characters are doing now you just had a little celebration while i was talking 116 had, years oh okay 1337 right. to 1453 fair enough okay but yeah so <laughs> i'm sorry so that but that my question as as a tv person like yourself do you find yourself getting frustrated when you know something is a really good concept but you also know something they possibly is keep this going the way american television does and it be good either they have to change move away that, from that central that, concept that's why i say that the last ship is ridiculous even though it has a great premise yeah. if if a great premise were enough then i'd be all on, i'd be on board for the last ship yeah but um i'd say maybe the number one thing that is important for a tv show is characters um, I would, uh, and I've, I think I've said maybe on this show before that I think characters are even more important to television than to film story I think te- so, yeah. storytelling. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's what the last ship lacks. It's just, hmm. uh, it's, I mean, I, I hate to be, I hate to be, I always hate being mean for some reason about actors. I'll be mean about like directors and cinematographers and stuff, but I'm always hate being mean cause you know, they're so fucking fragile. Um, <laughs> anyway, the perform the acting is all terrible except for Adam Baldwin, of course, who's of course. amazing and everything. Yeah. Uh, and um, there's nothing interesting about the characters. Nothing stands out um, that makes them any uh, different. What I guess that? there was a little bit of a twist at the end, but I won't spoil that. What was that submarine show with Andre Brower that we Last talked Resort. about? Last Resort. That was a good show, but even... There was a good pilot. I never watched beyond that. Yeah, it was a good pilot, and then it got canceled, probably because I feel like it couldn't have possibly lasted with that premise. But I remember liking I, that pilot. I think with the locations and stuff, I think Last Resort was an expensive show. I think that's okay. a big, that's a big part of it, and that's yeah. I think something that's going to hurt the Last Ship too if they try to keep yeah. up, because um, it was um, the pilot was directed by Jonathan Mostow. Uh, Name sounds familiar. Um, he did U five seven one. Oh, okay. And um, what's the really good one with Kurt Russell and um, Miracle? No, the truck movie with Kurt Russell. Uh, it's an amazing movie. Truck movie. Oh, the, oh, oh. Damn it. Breakdown. Breakdown. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's Jonathan Mostow, oh, I think, okay. right? That's an awesome movie, right? Yeah, I do enjoy that. And JT, um, JT Walsh. JT Walsh. Yeah. Being awesome. And, of course, another actor who's in it, whose name is wonderful is Jack Noseworthy. Jack Noseworthy. <laughs> the he's man in, who's worthy of a nose. <laughs> he's in Breakdown? I believe so, yeah. Because he's, he's in U571 as well. He okay, must yeah. be a uh, Jonathan Mostow regular. He was not in The Last Ship. Poor oh, Jack Noseworthy. No longer worthy. Um, <laughs> Doesn't yeah. you just said poor Jack Noseworthy, which couldn't sound more like a nur- like a, a nursery rhyme. Yeah. All right, that's enough bullshit. Yeah. I'm sure I have more to say about Jonathan Mostow and how great Breakdown is. Yeah. But everyone, everyone should watch Breakdown. I agree. Um. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.